Hi, everybody. It's Defend Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing very well. It is Sunday, February the 13th. Don't forget your roses and flowers tomorrow. It is the Philosophy Call-In Show from Freedom Main Radio at freedomainradio.com. And I hope you're having a fantastic weekend. Uh, just to start, uh, a kind listener sent me a book. I'll probably do a book review on this. It's called Empire of Illusion, The End of Literacy and the Triumph of Spectacle by Chris Hedges, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. He also wrote a book which was quite powerful called a war is a force that gives us meaning or something like that. So uh, I think it's an interesting book to read because when you get psychologically astute, when you have dealt with uh, self-knowledge issues in terms of philosophy for a number of years, there are certain things <laughs> that you can uh, really expect from, uh, from people and from situations. And the first is that the person who's complaining most about propaganda is very likely the person who's most subject to propaganda. So whatever people complain about the most, if they lack self-knowledge and philosophy, whatever people are complaining about is whatever they're the most susceptible to. Let me give you an example. So uh, he writes on page 44, Mr. Hedges, uh, and he's uh, quite the academic, quite the uh, well-rounded scholar. Uh, he's gone through the humanity. He's taught to, to Ivy League schools. He's been a reporter. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. So this dude knows his shite insides and uh, outside and backwards. So he writes, functional illiteracy in North America is epidemic. There are 7 million illiterate Americans. Another 27 million are unable to read well enough to complete a job application. And 30 million can't read a simple sentence. There are some 50 million who read at a fourth or fifth grade level. Nearly a third of the nation's population is illiterate or barely literate, a figure that is growing by more than $2 million, sorry, by $2 million a year. A third of high school graduates never read another book for the rest of their lives. Let me read that again. A third of high school graduates never read another book for the rest of their lives, and neither do 42% of college graduates. One more time. Nearly do 42, uh, neither do 42% of college graduates. In 2007, 80% of the families in the United States did not buy or read a book. And it's not much better beyond our borders. Canada eh, has an illiterate and some illiterate population estimated at 42% of the whole, a proportion that mirrors that of the United States. And uh, he goes on to page 45. The culture of illusion thrives by robbing us of the intellectual and linguistic tools to separate illusion from truth. It reduces us to the level and dependency of children. It impoverishes language. The Princeton Review <laughs> analyzed the transcripts of the Gore-Bush debates of 2000, the Clinton-Bush-Perot debates of 1992, the Kennedy-Nixon debate of 1960, and the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858. It reviewed these transcripts using a standard vocabulary test that indicates the minimum educational standard needed for a reader to grasp the text. In the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858, Lincoln spoke at the edu educational level of an 11th grader. And Douglas addressed the crowd using a vocabulary suitable even higher for a high school graduate. In the Kennedy-Nixon debates, the candidates spoke in a language accessible to 10th graders. So we've dumbed down a couple of grades by this point. 
In their 1992 debates, Clinton spoke at a seventh grade level, while Bush spoke at a sixth grade level, as did Perot. During the 2000 debates, Bush spoke at a sixth grade level and Gore at a high seventh grade level. This is the astounding thing. Uh, you know, it's, you almost can't get upset with it. It's so predictable, the degree to which this guy, he's written for Mother Jones. I mean, he's a complete socialist, was educated at a divinity school. So he's an irrationalist and a socialist. And so I would like to just offer you a, a test that helps you to sort of get out of culture, to get out of this massive propaganda pumped at you by the mainstream media. And this guy is worse than anyone because he has much, much fewer, uh, many, many fewer excuses. I call it the, uh, the space alien test, right? So imagine you were a space alien. You're just coming to visit Earth to write Don't Panic in the <laughs> encyclopedia. You were coming to, uh, mostly harmless. <laughs> so you, you're coming to Earth and you see that uh, people are really badly educated and that the educational standard has declined from the mid-19th century staggeringly ridiculously badly. See, it's not that everyone's at a sixth grade level because the people who tune into presidential debates tend to be more intelligent than the norm, but you view this massive growth in functional illiteracy to the point where there are very few people reading books anymore. And what you'd say, I think if you, if you had any sanity, if you had any rigor, if you had any philosophy, what you'd say is, wow, education is a real problem. Massive illiteracy. Education has declined in the last 160 years, catastrophically. So the first question you'd ask is, who the fuck is educating these children? Who is in charge of the education of the nation? That would be your very first question. Educational standards are catastrophic and declining. Who was educating the children in 1858? And who is educating the children in 2011? Well, of course, there was almost no public schooling in 1858. And there's almost nothing but public schooling in 2011. So that's the first thing you do is say, if the culture is insane, if the culture is into spectacle rather than content, if the culture is full of people who can't think, the first place you would look, particularly in a book that complains about education, the very first place that you would look is who is educating the children. And... Uh, does he ask that question? No, he starts talking about television and commercials and advertising and all the usual boring propaganda. Like, you almost can't blame the guy how he just can't think objectively. If you're going to complain that the population is uneducated, the first place you would look to is education, and you would compare it to a better time and ask what the difference is. The difference is private education versus public education. And the book is full of this kind of stuff, and the media is full of this kind of stuff, and the world is full of this kind of stuff. People claim to be interested in solving a problem, but they're just making propagandistic statements about that which they fear and hate. They, people fear and hate the peaceful market. I'm going to start calling it the peaceful market rather than the free market because it comes with less baggage, and that's an accurate description of it. It's the nonviolent market, the peaceful market. Well, all of the people, all of the parasites making all their money off selling illusions, they can't look in the mirror and say, what kind of illusions, what kind of propaganda am I supporting through my politics, particularly public school, particularly religion? What kind of delusions, what kind of parasitical illusions am I supporting through my work, through my life, through my education? 
No, what they have to do and say is the problem is, you see, that Barbies are sold. That's the problem. It's not, not the fact that the government controls 12 years of the children's life or more, really, when you think about how many kids are forced into government-controlled daycare. Controls the, the government controls decades of children's lives. But that has nothing to do with it. You see, the problem is that you see Play-Doh on television. So that's, that's the problem. The problem is not the Department of Education. Department of Public Education was its original acronym until they realized that the, or its original name until they realized the acronym was just too accurate. The problem you see is not brain deadening state indoctrination that pumps out functionally retarded adults. The problem you see is the fact that uh, you get an ad for Toy Story 3 on the television. See, that's the problem. Problem is the peaceful market that's attempting to entertain children, that's voluntary. Television is voluntary. Uh, commercials are voluntary. Buying toys is voluntary. School is violent. School is enforced. School is predatory. School is destructive. And they just can't see it, my friends. They just can't see it. So when you have these kinds of questions, the way to break out of propaganda, imagine you're a space alien coming and saying, well, this, this culture is really delusional. This culture can't think. This culture can't separate from fact from fantasy. Well, who's responsible for teaching children to separate fact from fantasy? It's the educators. So what the hell is going wrong with government education? Can't even entertain the question. He makes one mention in the book of dysfunctional schools towards the end with no comment. It's just in passing. But he can't even remotely consider an objective, rational... And this is the danger of life without philosophy. All you're doing is reassembling the idiot Lego blocks of prior propaganda in vaguely similar shapes. That's all you get to do without philosophy, without the space alien test, without working from first principles. All you're doing is reassembling the same old stupid jigsaw puzzles in a slightly different way and calling yourself original. And it's a real shame because he is a fantastic writer. I mean, some of his sentences are just jaw-droppingly great. But like all great communicators without philosophy, he can't think outside the little rat's maze of his own prior prejudices. So you get the same socialist nonsense that you've gotten before, which is to blame people in the peaceful market for the effects of everybody engaged in the control, indoctrination, bullying, and enforcement of miseducation on the young. It's tragic. It's inevitable. And it's got to change. Well, that's it for my intro. I am now all happy, happy to uh, hear your fine listenerships to set me on the right path and give me the good, old, juicy hamburger tasty questions. Hello. Hello. I guess I'm the only one with a question at the moment. <laughs> I don't know. Let's uh, see if we can get Jamesy P. on the line and uh, see what, uh, what the story is. Uh, so far, that's it right now. All right. I am all with the ears. What can I do for you, my friend? Um, well, I talked to you two weeks ago. I'm the moral nihilist. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I think you've been paying attention to my thread. Uh, dipping in here and there. Yeah. Well, I guess, well, maybe today, I don't know, it's like 18 pages long, the thread. So I'm not sure if we could actually tackle that subject um, in a discussion. But I was uh, also in my first post in that thread, I had a problem with um, your argument for property rights. I'm 
don't particularly want, I don't feel a strong impulse to, to do that. Uh, and I'll sort of tell you why. And uh, then you can tell me what you think. Okay. Uh, I, I felt that we had reached a frustrating impasse uh, when we talked before uh, and weren't able to make any progress. And uh, also when we were in the chat room, uh, we had an interaction that was not you know, wholly positive for me. And what that means to me, uh, just sort of on my <laughs> uh, fairly significant, though certainly not conclusive experience in these matters, is that it's usually better to talk about uh, anything that may be blocking communication uh, between two people rather than pretending that the communication gates are open, if that makes any sense? Yeah, sure. Okay. So uh, I wonder if you could just tell me, uh, uh, just so it's more than a sort of disembodied voice uh, in the wilderness, if you could just tell me a little bit about yourself and your history and, and why, these, um, why these issues are so important to you. Um, let's see. I read Ayn Rand when I was 16. I became an objectivist. After that, um, I was trying to follow things to the logical conclusion, and I ended up in smack in the middle of libertarianism. <laughs> and from there, I was doing some more research on that because it's important to me. And, um, I ran across your videos on YouTube, so... Um, so I became an anarchist and I discovered FDR and showed it to my sister. Um, and she, she's a member of FDR and, uh, a few months after I, the arguments of UPP and whatnot didn't hold up for me any longer, but they still held up for my sister up until, you know, up until now, they're still holding up. So I know it's just important to be able to debate things and think through things logically. That's why I'm here. Yeah, that's not telling me anything. I mean, that's an intellectual description, and I have no problem with, with hearing that. I assume that that's usually the case. But um, uh, just a little bit about, so, you know, what are the moral issues that you're dealing with in your life and, and um uh, what's uh, you know what's going on for you personally, and what was your childhood like? Th these are things that I find because I mean everybody knows my <laughs> my sort of history, and so at least most people do who've listened for a while. And uh, I usually find that if there's an impasse in communication, it's usually good to get a sense of somebody else's history just so I can get a more rounded view of the person. Okay, I'm not really sure exactly what you're looking for, but I can try. I I, I used to listen to your podcasts uh, a lot. So I'm, I'm not sure I have much of your history, but I think you had sort of crazy parents and you've defood from them, I'm pretty sure. And uh, But um, I've sort of had, you know, not not the best of parents, I suppose. They, they're, I'm, I've basically been um, uh, separate from my mother for uh, a long time, and I'm glad about that because she's just uh, kind of a broken person. But um, my childhood was a little, um, or a lot rather, it was uh, uh, dramatic. There were, you know, fights. My parents divorced. Um, but then luckily I, my father got custody and raised me and my twin sister together. And um, he did the best that he could when he didn't know how to cook, didn't really know, you know, he couldn't be around because he had to work all the time. So I, I don't know um, what exactly you're looking for there, but I always had my twin sister, and I, I'm, that part of my childhood was great. 
And uh, just so you could tell me what you mean by um, your father did the best that he could, uh, given that he didn't know how to cook and so on. I'm just not sure what that, uh, I'm curious what that, what that means. Well, he, it's not like he could afford a babysitter or something like that. He was just trying to do the best that he could. He would, um, he would uh, leave us with his parents sometimes uh, when he could, or my mother's uh, parents, uh, my grandparents when he could, because they knew how to cook, you know, nutritious meals and that sort of thing and keep us entertained and whatnot. When he, when, when we uh, were a bit, when we were kids, he was great. Like he, he would um, play games with us and spend a whole lot of time with us. But when we started turning into teenagers, he just, you know, couldn't really discuss, you know, boys and things like that with us. And it was a little harder for him. But I think that's kind of usual because, you know, it's just different, <laughs> different priorities at that age. What do you mean uh, kind of usual? Well, I think most teenage daughters don't exactly have the closest relationship with their father if they're trying to do things like begin to date and sort of try and find their selves outside of their family life. More spending time with their friends and, you know, the father's trying to rein them in, saying, no, no, you can't just do whatever you want. You have, you know, there are rules, stuff like that. So you weren't particularly close to your dad, but you were a teenager? No. And uh, thanks. And, and your mom? Or what was the story with your mom? Uh, my mom, we didn't live with her anymore. It was a good thing. She She's an alcoholic and whatnot. And so, yeah, she was just out of the picture. Uh, so, um, and how, sorry, uh, when did you stop seeing your mom? Um, well, we still had to see her let, uh we were still ordered by the court to see her about once a week, but she didn't make it all the time for visits, which is a good thing. <laughs> uh, the less we saw of her, the better. And I don't know I'm good with that. <laughs> I'm happy about that because she's just not a not a good person to be around. It's it's easier for me to be around her now because I um, I can handle it. I understand, and I can just distance myself from. From any of that, I can just, you know, it doesn't matter to me anymore because I'm an adult, so. And uh, just roughly how old are you? I don't I need an exact year. I'm just curious. I'm, I'm 22. 22, okay. And when was the last time you saw your mom? Um, uh, just uh, maybe, oh, uh, well, actually, I had to go to a funeral uh, last Sunday. That's why I didn't call again last Sunday. I saw her then. Um, yeah, and do you see her sort of regularly, or is it pretty infrequent? Uh, yeah, now she lives close by to where I live now, and so she drops by every so often. And yeah, I don't see her a great deal, but just sometimes. And is she still drinking? She is now. Finally, she's joined AA, and she's in groups, but she does sometimes slip up, so... I just, I've made it a rule and I've made it very clear to her now that I, when she's drinking, I will have absolutely nothing to do with her. And I've made that clear. So, so if she's drinking, I don't see her. Right. I'm so sorry. I mean, I, really, I know what you mean when you say like, it's, it's better uh, to, to not see her in those situations, but you know, that's sort of making the best of a bad situation. It would be much, much better to not have to have those choices, if that makes any sense. You mean to not have to choose to see her? Like you mean to not see no, her? No, to at not all? have a sorry, to not have a um, 
to not have a mother who drank, to not have a mother who, oh, you know, okay. there was all this kinds of dysfunction. Like, so I, like, I just sort of wanted to point out that, I mean, I'm so sorry. I mean, this is, you know, you, you're certainly brave, I think, in making the best of a difficult situation and saying, given the choices, this is the best option. But boy, I mean, nobody wants those choices at all, right? Yeah, but I, I do think I don't, I don't really blame her for her drinking because she is uh, sort of, she's uh, bipolar. She, she was born with obvious psychological problems like she by the time she was 13 she was already into heavy drinking and drugs and already was you know uh bipolar people go from depressive to manic and she's been like that all her life where everything will be fine she she's like for times in her life she'll have stopped drinking for months and she'll have a job and she'll be you know just the greatest you know just always helping us and doing everything right. And then for no reason at all, she'll just completely flip and she'll turn, she'll turn to depressed and drinking and ruin her job. And, you know, that's just how, how it goes for that sort of disorder. And I think, you know, she, she never really had a choice with that. So you said that she was, um, she was born with this, uh, these psychological problems. Uh, yeah, my grandmother told me that when she was a child, it was already obvious that she had, I don't know, she, she didn't tell me really specifically, but she said that she always knew that my mother had some sort of a, some sort of problems <laughs> that way. So, um, so what's your belief or perception about the effects of early childhood experiences on later mental health? Uh, yeah, I, I believe it can definitely have an effect. Uh, for for different people, I'd say it's different. I think that that makes sense. But for some people, it might affect them more. For some people, a bad experience, for example, might motivate them to become a better person. They might learn from a bad example. Uh, although, you know, I've some people, however, are affected negatively by the bad example, obviously. Um, but I think when you get to become an adult, you can sort of, um, once you find, you know, love in other places, friends who actually care about you, and you work through what happened back then, and you realize that, you know, things weren't perfect, you know, everybody's human, even your parents. Everybody has problems. Um, so I just think that when you're an adult, you can separate yourself from that. And maybe it's very hard for some people and some people, maybe they never get over it. But I, I do think there's an effect and um, it just depends on uh, if you can get over it and how quickly you can get over it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... Um... If I understand this rightly, you're from your perspective. Uh, I'm not. I'm not criticizing it. I just want to make sure I understand. I'm not praising it. I just want to make sure that I understand where you're coming from. So, from your perspective, neither your mother nor your father bear any responsibility for the dysfunctions or destructive aspects of your childhood. Um, no, I wouldn't say that. I'd say I don't blame my mother for her uh, mental illness since that was it's like a brain thing it's the chemicals in the brain thing that's not something she ever had any control over it's unfortunate i do think you know well sorry but the the scientific jury is not not does not say that i mean the the science at least uh, i just had an interview with dr thomas says who's um 
a pretty famous psychiatrist, and uh, I've talked about this with other. Uh, he just wrote a book. Uh, he's written a book called The Myth of Mental Illness in 1960 and so on, and has re- sort of updated it more recently. The uh, the science does not support. Uh, that there is a physical difference in the brain for people with bipolar or, or even people with schizophrenia and so on. That's um, obviously I'm, I'm no doctor and I'm just sort of repeating what what I've been told by a number of different researchers in the field that there is no uh, uh, that there's no evidence, no scientific evidence that there's a physical disorder that produces these these sorts of things. Which again doesn't answer anything. Uh, it just means that the idea that there is a physical disorder remains unproven. Okay. No, I'm just, right. I'm just sort of pointing that out. I mean, just throw, throw my two cents in again, you know, as the amateur. But, but you had said that your mother wasn't responsible because of this. And you also said that your father did the best he could, which would indicate that, that there was no possible way he could have done any better, to my understanding. And well, no, I, 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 the, the best that somebody can do is blurry. It's, I can't know, you know, but he, to me, put in a good effort that that's that's what i'm willing to say he put in a good effort it maybe not his best i don't know but a good well, effort. You, no i'm sorry i don't mean i'm not trying to catch you out but you did say he did the best he could and i'm not trying to catch you out i just want to make sure that i understand what what you mean by that okay i, just, I don't mean the best he could since literally that's i can't know but um he put in a good effort and um I would imagine that, uh, you know, based on your philosophical approach, that that you don't uh, hold them morally responsible. Um, morally responsible for their actions? Mm-hmm. Of course I do. Of course I do. Oh, sorry. Go on. Maybe I, I must have misunderstood something then. Uh, I I realize that they they could have done different things, tried different things, and maybe he could have, you know, put all his energy into learning to cook, but. You know, that's not most guys, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, it's, you know, there are only so many things a person can do. Like, you have to focus your energy somewhere. And, and you know, a person can always improve. They could always be a better dad, be a better citizen, be a better whatever, you know, whatever standard you're trying to hold them up to. Um, I think he tried to, you know... He definitely had his flaws. He definitely had his areas that um, for, it, it made me and my sister both not very close to him for a long time. Um, I, I'll definitely hold him responsible for for that, for his for his parenting, and that it wasn't perfect, of course. But um, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure what's wrong with that necessarily. If you're trying to say that, I don't know. If I'm sorry, if I'm trying to say what? I don't know. If you're trying to say uh, that that my father wasn't a good parent exactly or didn't do the I'm best. I'm sorry. Like I, honestly, I'm just asking questions. I haven't said anything. Okay. Well, I just wonder what you're getting at. I mean, to me, it's not that really – it's not really important because it doesn't really have much to do with who I am now. You're 22 and you're saying that the some of the dysfunction and chaos – in your childhood doesn't have much to do with who you are now? Um, well, uh, how do you think it's still affecting me? Like back then, maybe it limited me in ways and maybe it hindered my social skills or, you know, you can make all kinds of, you know, guesses about what it did. And it affected my relationship with my father, yes. But now, you know, my father is, you know, encouraging. He's 
um, tells me to do whatever makes me happy. He's always there for me if I need help with something, like an assignment for school. He'll, um, and if the printer's broken, then he'll just come over and, and uh, drive me downtown somewhere to, you know, get it printed and done and whatever. So I don't know. He's, um, I consider him a friend now. Right. Well, I mean, just to go out on a ridiculous limb, and again, just as this amateur idiot hour here, as usual, um, my guess would be that uh, this kind of history may have uh, had an effect on on adult romantic relationships for you. It's possible, you know. At least that would be the first the first thing if you were to say, well, how how might it have affected me? Um, that that it would have had some effect on your adult romantic relationships. Well, if it did, I don't think it negatively affected me. Since I'm in a good relationship. And can you tell me a little bit about the relationship, if you don't mind? Okay, well, it, I've um, been in the current relationship that I am for over four years, since I was um, 18. It's long distance, um, but we talk every day, and yeah. I don't know what more you want to know. Um, okay, so it's uh, just I mean, standard boyfriend-girlfriend kind of stuff? Sorry, what? It's a standard boyfriend-girlfriend kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a little it's a little uh, unconventional, but I don't know what you really need to know about that. Well, I, I, I don't need to know anything. I mean, I'm just trying to sort of get a sense of, of where people are coming from because I always find that's much more helpful if you reach an impasse in communication to learn more about the person. So what? Yeah. again, you don't have to answer any of, any of this stuff at all. Um, I just want to make sure that, that if we talk about philosophy, I, I'm, I sort of know a little bit more about you. Um, yeah. What's not standard about your romantic relationship? Uh, well, it's an open relationship. I know you disapprove of those, but for me, I find it, it's really healthy for me. I mean, for I, it's not for everyone. I agree with that. But um, for me personally, I'm, I'm happy. I'm not jealous. I'm, I, I love the relationship. It works for me and it's good. <laughs> and uh, I'm open relationships mean different things to different. Uh, and I hope that you understand my approval or disapproval means absolutely nothing <laughs> about your relationship. I mean, this is just my opinions. But um, uh, what do you mean by an open relationship? Because, again, some people, I've heard sort of different definitions of it. Okay, well, he's married. Uh, so that is why um, – that's sort of how I even even considered possibly having an open relationship was that uh, we fell in love online. And after months and months of talking every day, it was just obvious and – um, we discussed the moral implications and he told his wife and she knows about us. And, um, so yeah, he's married and we're both allowed to see other people, but, um, yeah, that, that's basically it. And is, is his marriage an open marriage? Like his wife uh, is able to see other people and does she pursue that? Yes. Okay. And, uh, is he around your age or is there an age difference? There is an age difference. Yes. And what's the age difference? Uh, 26 years. <laughs> Sorry, um, <laughs> I just want to make sure I understand that. So, it's, it, You mean he's 26? Uh, no, no, no. He's uh, 48. Yeah. He's 48. Okay. And his yeah. wife is around his age? Uh, she's a bit older. She's 50, uh, 54 or something like that. Right, right. Okay. And does he have kids? Yes, three. 
And how old are his kids? Uh, one's younger than me, one's uh, my age, and one is 24. And uh, they, uh, the one who's your age, is she? Is, is it a boy or a girl? It's a girl. Right, right. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And um, have you ever talked to his wife? Uh, no, she doesn't want to talk to me. Knowing about me is all she wants. She's, she doesn't want to talk to me, no. <laughs> Do you know why? Uh, yeah, she, she, um, she wants a close relationship with him and she would prefer that he only saw her. So no. she doesn't want to be in an open relationship. Well, well, she she's. I'm sorry, she's, and I'm I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I just you know I just want to make sure I get a map of of this. She 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 sways back and forth. Sometimes she says yes. Sometimes she says no. She sways back and forth because when he originally told her, she said that yes, that's fine. But I think her opinion changed because um, because I'm planning to move closer. I guess she wasn't threatened by a long-distance relationship, I suppose, and now she feels a bit threatened, although I wish I could talk to her and tell her that I'm not threatening her relationship with him in any way, but um, alas, she doesn't want to talk to me, so. Right, right. And are you moving closer to be uh, closer to the fellow? Yeah, eventually, yeah. Sorry, what do you mean eventually? Uh, well, I haven't uh, started moving yet. I'm still in school. I want to finish school here before I move. Right, right. Okay. But but the goal is to be closer to uh, to the fellow? Yeah. And what are your, I don't know, I, I mean, you sound to me like a person who lives in the moment, which is something that I, I, I admire in many ways. So, I, you know, if that means anything to you, but uh, if you do uh, think about, sorry? Well, I would not describe myself that way at all. Uh, I'm a very shy person. I usually plan everything out and think about things for a long time before actually making a decision. So I'm not sure I would define myself as as living in the moment at all. Oh, okay, good. Well, that's actually easier then for the next question because the next question that I would have then is uh, what do you see the relationship, uh, where do you see the relationship going with uh, this fellow? Um. Well, if lately, lately they've been seeing a marriage counselor just um, to dissect their own relationship because they've both had, um, they both have been displeased with their relationship in various ways. And um, uh, so they're trying to work that out now. And um, she might decide eventually that she isn't getting what she wants from him and never has. Um, I don't know. If she does that, then perhaps eventually I'll be able to have a, you know, maybe even, you know, live with him and that sort of thing. Um, but I don't need that. Um, I'm fine with living close to him and just seeing him all the time. I don't want children. So. Um, well, I mean, you don't want children at the moment, right? I mean, that may be, may be something that changes over time. I mean, it, it could, it could. I, I agree with that. And if, if that was the case, then, yeah. But I, you know, I I don't think I will want to. And but, you know, if you, want, if, if you did want children, say, in, you know, 10 years or whatever, I mean, you're young that you could make, make that decision, uh, he would be, what, close to 60? Yeah, 
But right. I wouldn't so be happy. Made to... less likely to want to go. <laughs> I mean, because I'm enmeshed in in a, <laughs> a sort of infancy babyhood stage at the moment, it's it's quite a stress even on my moderately ancient 44 year old body. So he may not want to go around around again. It's just it's just a thought. I mean, well, I, I wouldn't be having planned. children. I wouldn't be having children with him anyway. If I wanted to have children, I'd find somebody else to do that with. Right, right. And uh, what about his uh, his children? What's your relationship like with his kids? Um, well, his daughter knows about me. His sons don't know about me that that I'm aware of. He's closest with his daughter. Just uh, they sort of talk more. Um, his sons are a bit. Well, now he's talking to them more. Um, but they're they're sort of you know uh, kind of I I don't want to say well a stereotypical male sort of in in they don't talk much. They're just sort of like one word answer kind of thing. <laughs> I guess um so so he and and since he told his wife about me she doesn't want the kids to know about me and he respects that so and so do I But that's I mean that's definitely a barrier to intimacy right I mean I'm sorry? if he's got to, if he, if he has to keep you as a secret with with his kids that's a barrier to intimacy I, mean, I assume obviously that you're an important part of his life I'm just sort of pointing it out right that uh, uh, it means that there's a huge subject in his life that he's he can't talk about with his kids right Um well uh yeah I, yeah that's true I guess <laughs> And it also means know, that, uh, sorry, and again, these aren't criticisms. I'm just trying to, again, just trying to get a lay of the land. Uh, it also means that you can't ever be integrated into his family, right? So you can't ever join them for Christmas. You can't ever join them for uh, Thanksgiving or, or birthdays. Or, you know, if there's a, a grandkid who comes into the picture, uh, you can't be part of that, right? I mean, you you would definitely much, uh, you would you would remain outside the orbit of the, the family. Is that is that a fair statement? Or, and, uh, like, yeah, and that's, if things a, don't that's change. a fair statement. It's not my family, it's his. So I'm... Um, I mean, I think any any sort of um, loved one might have, you know, area friends and and family members that they only do family things together. I think that's, I mean, or I guess you know, I guess a married couple, yeah. But like like a dating couple, the the person doesn't necessarily attend all family functions, and you know, like. You know things like that. I I don't. See well, but it usually, much- yeah, sorry, but usually after a four year relationship, things do tend to blend in a little bit, right? I mean, if I was yes, sort of dating yes. a, girl, a woman for four years, then, uh, and you know, she couldn't be part of any of my family functions. That would, I mean, to me, that would just be a bit strange. But you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm just walking. I'm trying to walk a mile in your shoes. And since you say that you sort of think about and plan about things, that's uh, that's sort of what I was trying to uh, what I was trying to understand. Well, I I don't feel the need to be included by them if. It, um, it's sort of like just if, if you married somebody and their parents and family didn't like you and didn't want to talk to you, then you wouldn't have anything to do with them. And that wouldn't necessarily have, you know, that wouldn't necessarily be a barrier between you and the person you're in a relationship with. They could still go see those people and, and use and, and even tell you what happened at, at the certain functions. And it's not necessarily a barrier, I don't think. Well, to me, and this is, and I'm not saying this is any philosophical principle. This is just sort of a personal principle that, for me, if if I have to keep secrets from people I love, that's not uh, that's a barrier to intimacy. And the more important the secret, and the more I have to keep it from someone, the the more of a barrier to intimacy it is. Yes, but that's her choice. She's choosing to pull away from him and say, I don't want to hear about her. I don't want to meet her. I am closing this off. It's it's on her side. It's not 
Well, I'm not thinking about her so much as as him. That uh, right. he's uh, he's now accepted as a rule that that he can't talk about this very important part of his life, which is his affair with you, or uh, sorry, affair is not the right word because it's an open marriage, but uh, his his uh, his relationship with you uh, is something that's obviously very important to him, but he can't talk about with uh, with his uh, kids, or at least not all of them. Yeah. Um, well, it could, I guess it could sort of be a barrier, but, you know, he still isn't that close to them and hasn't been close to them before he ever met me. That's just a, you know, their relationship is just not that way yet. And he's trying to work on it and they're trying to work on it. And I don't... Oh, but having a big secret isn't going to help them get closer, right? Well, I mean, I don't really see that as, you know, I don't really see that as important. I mean, why is who you're dating that important? I mean, well, but see, if it's not important, then he should be able to, to talk about it, right? I mean, if I, if, I, if I stub my toe and that's not very important, I can talk about it with my wife like, damn, I stubbed my toe, ow, or something. Uh, please help me find my toenail. Um, but uh, obviously, a, a love affair that has gone on for four years uh, is, is pretty significant. It was very significant, right? I mean, it may be the most important relationship that's going on in his life at the moment in terms of his passions. And I'm just, I'm just pointing out, like this, again, I'm not talking about anything from a moral standpoint, but, uh, but these are the, the consequences, right? Which is that uh, this huge part of his life he, he, can't, he can't speak about. Well, it is important to him. The relationship is important to him, but that doesn't mean that it's important to talk about it with his kids, I don't think. I mean, why would it be? I mean... Why would something that's very important to him not be important to share with his family? Well, he has other important things that um, he wants to talk about, but I don't see why his kid, making his kids sort of, if they're uncomfortable with it, I don't see why he would need to talk about it with them in order to be close with them. I think he can definitely be close to them without ever talking about it. Yeah, I don't agree with that. I think if you have a big secret from people, you can't be close. And also, we don't know if the kids are uncomfortable with it or not, because the choice to be comfortable with it or not has been taken away from them, because the information is not being presented, right? Well, it was to his one, his daughter. Well, his kids as a whole, though, right? Yeah. And now, is his daughter not supposed to talk about it with her siblings? Um... No, no, he didn't say that she couldn't talk about it. So possibly they do know, but um, I don't know if they know. Right, right. She's not. Well, it's, it's, sorry. Go ahead. She's she's not that close with her brother brothers. I think uh, so. I don't know if she would have talked um, to them about it. But and what does your uh, what does your dad think about this? Um, he he says if it makes me happy, then. It's a good thing, and I'm an adult, and I make my own decisions. And um, since he's he's talked to my boyfriend uh, over Skype, actually. It's so <laughs> and, funny just uh, to think of the word you know, boyfriend, a guy who's pushing fifty. That just you know, like I mean, it's it's just a trick of the language that's kind of interesting, right? Anyway, go on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Um, uh, yeah, I know he he approves. He thinks uh, he's he, my boyfriend as long as he's good to me and he's always there for me, emotional support. You know, it's not like his. You know, he's he's a busy person, but he makes the time for me, a lot of time for me, and um, um, it's not a relationship that I'm settling for in any way. It's just it's uh, it works for me. Yep. And. Um... 
Is he, I mean, I guess he's, um, I don't know how to put this delicately. And look, if you don't want to talk about this, I mean, this is very interesting to me because I think all aspects of human experience are just fascinating. So I really do appreciate you you talking about this. One of the things that uh, I dated a woman who was uh, older when I was a student, and one of the things that, that was uh, a, um, a challenge for us was just the different income levels, right? So uh, she was uh, uh, <laughs> making money hand over fist, and I was living on student ramen and all that kind of stuff. Is that something that comes up in your relationship at all? Uh, yeah, it's a huge difference, yeah. But uh, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't affect our relationship uh, uh, negatively accept in, in the sense that I'm not ready to uh, move closer to him yet because I can't afford to just up and move across Canada and um, do that yet or and live on my own yet. I just can't do that yet. But um, other than that, it's um, it doesn't really get in the way. Is there, I mean, do you, do you guys see each other? Where do you see each other again? Just I'm just trying to, I was fascinated by the logistics of stuff, right? I mean, uh, how does that work? <laughs> Well, sometimes he flies here, sometimes I fly there. Um, uh, he, he goes on a lot of uh, business trips for his work and also for he's involved in a couple of uh, sort of um, uh, geeky subjects. Um, uh, so he goes to conferences on those uh, and sometimes he'll, you know, stop in uh, Toronto and see me and uh, during that trip. And actually last year I... Uh, I lived in his city for three months. So yeah, that was, yeah, that was, um, a, a bigger visit than we normally can have. And I would assume that, um, you can't afford these, these trips, right? I mean, so no. he pays for those. No, I can't. No. So he's like, sends you a, a plane ticket and puts you up in a hotel when, when like with him or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, he, he said he assures me that it, you know, it's worth it to him. And of course, I can't afford these things, but um, but you know, we love each other, and otherwise, we wouldn't be able to see each other. So yeah, he um, he's okay with uh, arranging it. And your twin is it? Is it a girl or a boy? A girl. Yeah. And what does she think of it? Uh, she she always um, she met him at the same time I met him online, and I think she thought he was first of all really really intelligent, and I think her opinion of him is is good. And she's um, she met him the last time he was here, um, and so did my friend. Um, met him in person, I mean, and yeah, I I think she has a good opinion of him. Right, right. And when you said earlier that you had worked through this stuff from your childhood, can you tell me what uh, what you had done to to achieve that? Well, I've been in therapy, um, and I just talked. Sorry, about how it long were you? How long were you in therapy for, or are you? Um, I was in therapy for, I believe, a few months with a um, a sort of a specialist, but I didn't really. I didn't really like that one. So then I, then I was in therapy with a sort of a general therapist sort of counselor, um, for another few months. And that was what really helped me until the point where I felt like I didn't need to go there anymore. So I'm not in therapy anymore. Right. And, um, what's, uh, I shouldn't think if that's, uh, if that's a reasonable question to ask. No, I don't think it is. I was going to ask you sort of what was the content, but I think that's probably too personal to talk about it. So, um, let me just, uh, figure out what, uh, what the other question was. I'm trying to remember. 
but I wanted to uh, to ask you. Uh, so you did a couple of months of therapy, basically, with a therapist that you felt was uh, was good. Yeah. And what did your therapist think of this relationship? Um, she actually, uh, you know, she at the time I I hadn't told my family about it um, because I thought they would obviously react very negatively. Since then, I've actually I've obviously told um, my entire family. And, you know, initially they were very against it, but now they, I think they, they've had to accept that he's been good to me and it works for me. And, you know, um, I know it was very hard for them though, because it's very unconventional. Um, but yeah, uh, um, sorry, I forgot the question. <laughs> no, that's fine. Do you think that, I mean, in terms of the the age difference is obviously bigger than you've been alive, right? So yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's about the same length as I've been into philosophy, madly coincidentally <laughs> enough. Uh, the age difference is interesting to me because there is an accumulation. And I say this as, you know, somebody who to you, you probably <laughs> seems as ancient as the Himalayas, but um, well, maybe not actually given your, your dating preferences or preference in this situation. But there's kind of an accumulation of life experiences that occurs over the years that to me is hard to replicate. You know, like when I'm talking to people who are younger, you know, perhaps yourself excluded, right? But with, but uh, when I'm talking with people with, who are younger, I'm very aware that I'm talking with people who are younger. And I also feel that way when I'm talking to people who are older. Do you, th- if this theory is true, and it may be complete nonsense, but if this approach is true, then there must be some sort of mental age that you meet in the middle uh, to have that kind of compatibility. Uh, yeah, do you yeah. think that it's you who, like, wh- what do you think the, the age is that your minds are meeting at? Is he young for his age? Are you old for your age? Are you sort of meeting in the middle? How does that work, do you think? Um, I, I'm not as, uh, I don't have as high of, as, uh, um, of an IQ as he does. Um, but I think I am mature. So I, that, like, there's sort of a, I don't know, like intellectually where, um, I can grasp, um, the things that he talks about. And the way we met was a philosophy discussion, actually. Um, and we debated, you know, and he, um, he since, uh, learned that I was a very mature person or that was his impression of me, even though at the time I was 18 when he met me, um, and he he ended up after you know months of knowing me and then now it's been years i his his um his opinion is that i'm a mature person more so than some people he's known who are his age um that i just think about things carefully and um i i don't like i i don't like uh manipulate people i don't uh throw a throw a hissy fit i don't do any of that stuff that um he usually encounters i suppose so and i've always you know been attracted to his maturity because i i i basically can't really stand people my own age like not not can't stand them but like couldn't stand to be in a romantic relationship with one because uh, to me, they're just, um, I, I have at least haven't encountered one that actually, uh, deals with things in the way that I would find mature enough. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, I'm certainly not one to <laughs> even uh, remotely stand between two, two hearts destined to, to be in love. But, uh, <laughs> I, you know, the, the, the part of me, obviously that, and I'm sure this is uh, something that you've thought about, and I'm not telling you anything new is that I guess he was like, 44 when he first met you when you were 18? Uh, yeah, I think that's right, yeah. Right. Now, uh, I mean, of course, when, when a, 
when a woman is 18, and I, I certainly think 18 is a, a woman is an appropriate term for an 18, 18 year old uh, female. Uh, when a woman is 18, uh, her brain has still developing. I mean, the brain doesn't really finish developing until about the age of 25. So you're, and that's sort of an annoying thing to say, and you know, whatever. But but that's the sort of scientific fact. So I think that uh, a man of 44 uh, engaging in a relationship with a girl of 18, a woman of 18, sorry, uh, is uh, he's not uh, letting the the sort of uh, he's sort of going in before the brain has finished maturing, and that's just something that's. It's one of the reasons why I think people find those age differences to be uh, unsettling. Uh, and again, yes. that's, that's, I'm sure you've thought about all of that stuff. Oh, yeah. I, well, he actually was very against having a relationship with me uh, the first time I started um, telling him my feelings. Um, he was, uh, as you can imagine, he didn't want to feel like a creep. He, he had never had a relationship with someone with that much of an age difference before. Um, so he was... He was um, very reluctant to actually, you know, he had to try and make sure that I understood um, that I was actually mature enough to understand what I was, you know, saying and that and that I was mature enough to make a decision like that. Um, and I realized that when I was 18, I wasn't as mature as I am now and I'm still growing. But I think I I think I clearly did make um, the decision knowing knowing what sort of decision I was making because the relationship is still lasting and it, 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 um, you know, I, um, well, yeah. look, look, I, look, I would say, and again, this is just going to be annoying, naggy older guy stuff. So you can just discard it as you see fit. But this to me is not quite at the level of a relationship because a relationship is like, you guys have, you know, fun times when you get together and there, there's passion and there's physicality and there's all that kind of good stuff, but it's bungee stuff. Like relationships are, uh, you know, like night and day. Like you have to deal with each other when you have the flu. You have to deal with your mother-in-law getting sick. Uh, you have to deal with bills and you have to deal with mortgages and you have to deal with debt sometimes and you have to deal with all of that kind of stuff, right? So uh, can, can I just, uh, well, for, for a normal dating relationship, you don't necessarily have to deal with all that stuff. I just like- Well, to- after four years you do, at least you probably do, right? Well, because if you're not if you're not at that level after four years, then you're holding yourself out from the relationship, right? Because you kind of have to get in with all of the mucky muck of life's problems, at least within you know when you're coming up for half a decade. So again, I'm not criticizing what you have. I'm just sort of saying that it's not quite the same as a relationship where you where you're living with someone and dealing with you know the daily trials and tribulations and challenges that that come up with living. Yeah, so of there's, course. Of course. there's still I, a place to go. Yes, of course, and I don't think that I'm. I realized that it would be different and that this is a sort of um, an easier, you know, I don't have to deal with any of like, uh, maybe he has annoying quirks that I just never have have encountered because I haven't been living with him for, you know, 24 seven. Although we have taken two weeks, three weeks trips together where we are in constant. Um, but vacation, company. right? Yeah, that's that's true, but then yeah, it's, it's I hard think, to not get yeah. along. On, I mean, just sort of pointing out. I mean, just as someone who's now, you know, been married for gets coming up for a decade, and you know, kids and and illnesses and and problems and all that kind. Of, I mean, yeah. I'm just saying that there's a there's a level that that still has to of to course, get. Yeah. Do you, did your parents uh, have any problems with uh, I guess what would traditionally be called infidelity uh, in their marriage? Um, 
not I don't think they did in their original marriage I, I'm not really clear on that I think my mother did actually like um because she uh, wanted to drink and and so my father didn't approve of that and so she would drink with other men and that made him jealous but I don't think she ever actually had a relationship with um yeah okay so it, it, there was some maybe some inappropriate flirting but not necessarily sexuality is that right yeah yeah. Right, but you don't know, right? And I'm not saying you should know. I'm just, I'm just sort of curious. Yeah, I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, the other, you know, the last thing, and I appreciate this. Uh, I really do appreciate you opening up your your life like this. It certainly helps me put things, uh, some things in perspective. But the other thing that I would mention, of course, is that you had a uh, sort of unavailable dad to some degree or another, at least according to what you said. And that certainly is a bit of a pattern that's been repeated to some degree in your relationship with this with this other fellow, right? Huh. Well, yeah, that's an interesting way to put it, except that um, he is sort of available because, like, basically all the time because he's always online and always accessible and I can always call him. Um, and we talk for hours every day online. Um, uh, maybe it's not the usual, you know, face-to-face -face communication, but actually I prefer writing because that's actually my strength. With speaking, I sort of stumble and lose my uh, my point and that sort of thing. But anyway, that's just the person. But I mean sort of available in a way of being able to commit to you as an individual. He's, right? he's not unavailable when I actually... Uh, yeah, but I don't need that. So for me, it's no. I'm, really I'm sorry. Please, please understand. I'm not saying you should, or I'm not saying you should need it, or I'm not saying it should happen. I'm just saying there's a pattern here that I've noticed. It may be irrelevant, but it may not be entirely accidental. That this may be something that your comfort level is to have intimacy without uh, an overwhelming kind of availability, or maybe over it's just a possibility. I'm just sort of throwing it out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. That, that could be possible. Um, eventually, though, I do want to make it so I live near him and then then he would um, be available to me in a greater way. Well, maybe and maybe not. Because, yeah, maybe. Uh, you know, he, he may go to marriage counseling and his marriage counselor may say, and certainly I've heard lots of marriage counselors say this, uh, is to say you, you can't fix a marriage while there's an affair going on. Right, so you have to not have the affair in order to work on the marriage. Like in the same way, you can't give anyone therapy while they're taking drugs. And again, I'm not obviously trying to compare you to a drug, but I've certainly heard that there's some kind of standards within the profession, which is to say uh, that you, you can't be continuing an affair while you're working on repairing a marriage, particularly if one person is not so keen on the affair, i.e. The, the wife here. Like that, that, that variable has to be taken out of the equation in order to work on the marriage. So, you well, know, if they go into marital counseling, that, that may be a condition of marital counseling. Uh, and uh, it, so it may or may not work out that he's going to become more available. Yeah, yeah. It's just, well, I just want to point out that it, it's not a condition of the counseling because um, they're trying to see if uh, the, the wife wants to know if their relationship is worth it to her outside of the fact that he is having a relationship with me. She's sort of putting that aside and seeing if, because their marriage has been kind of unhappy, I would say, in, in various ways for both of them. Oh, but listen, I got to tell you, this is where, and again, I hate to be annoying, but this is where your youth shows up, that their marriage can exist outside of a four-year affair with you, 
that that's not intimately bound up. There's no way of looking at the marriage outside of including that very no, no, significant I, fact, right? Well, I, obviously it affects her, obviously, you know, but before I ever came along, there were problems. That's what I'm Oh, no to question. I, I mean, I'm not saying that, I'm certainly not saying you've caused the problems in the marriage. Uh, obviously, it's not helping if he's continuing an affair with you that she doesn't want to, to, to continue. That's obviously not helping their marriage. In fact, it's harming it. But I'm just saying well, there's absolutely. no way to look at the marriage outside of uh, the fact that you're involved as as uh, an affair. Uh, I just, you know, you, aren't you sort of discounting that an open relationship can can be can work and that everyone can be happy with it? I certainly am, uh, and I'll be, I'll be completely honest about that. I, I don't believe that, that it can work, and it's certainly well, not working I, I just, for the wife, right? Uh, well, she she seems to change her mind on that because she seems sometimes perfectly happy with it, perfectly fine with it, and she says she's fine with it, And but then she'll change her mind, and she's sort of, um, and this is one of the traits that he doesn't I really, he can't be close to her because she changes her mind so much. She's not... Um, really firm on what she says it's you know he thinks that that is sort of an immature sort of thing which i right, but all i'm saying is that uh, you know it's 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 not working for her at at the moment right i mean maybe she's okay with it sometimes and then she's not but that's not uncommon you know if you're you know people who are not in happy in a relationship the, the one of the challenges is that they don't just get completely unhappy. You know, from 100% happy to 100% unhappy, there's a transitional phase where it's like, you know, a plane losing fuel. It doesn't just go straight into the ground. It sort of goes up and down and catches an updraft and goes down again. So I think that's uh, that's pretty pretty natural. It's not working for the kids because he can't talk to his kids about his relationship with you. You can't talk to the kids. You can't be part of their family. So there's a separation. He has to put up those mental walls to separate his relationship with you with everyone else, which creates intimacy barriers with, I mean, things that you have to keep secret, particularly important things create intimacy barriers uh, irrevocably. Uh, that's just, I mean, that's, if you can't talk about stuff, you have to keep it secret. You have to constantly be aware that you can't talk about it. And of course, when he's on line uh, talking to you for hours a day, uh, he is, you know, de facto not available to, to his family because he's talking to you, at least to his children, because he's talking to you and you're sort of a secret. So if they say, what are you doing? He has to not tell the truth to them, right? I mean, well, I, I'm not criticizing. I'm just pointing out that these are ways in which there are barriers to openness uh, because of it. Well, actually, that's that's not um, – he, he works on the computer, so and he talks to me while he's working. So he has to be on the computer anyway. It doesn't take him away from his family in any way. No, I've just pointed out that it does because if one of his children, I am him, say, what are you doing? He can't say, well, I'm chatting with so-and-so. Well, when his daughter does ask, you know, some, he will he will um, tell her that he's talking to, to either to me or to someone. But, um, but yeah, his other kids, that's true. But I don't think that's necessarily a barrier. But okay. you, you disagree. Well, look, I've, I've made the case. I'm not going to... Yeah, you disagree. Time. This you disagree, made... and and that's um, that's you know we're, we're not going to agree on that. I obviously think think it's working for me, um, but um, yeah, I I don't know if you think this will affect our debate in some way. I've been trying to understand where you think this could possibly affect, uh, you know, where we're coming from intellectually. Well, look, if if we can't agree on on the tangibles, we won't ever be able to agree on the abstracts. That's sort of why well, I ask this kind of stuff. But, you you're trying to tell either me or or you're trying to decide 
you know, what's personally best for a relationship between me and him and or my boyfriend and his children where it's not a barrier because they're not at that point that they're close enough that they would even discuss that. They, they still have to get to the, the parts where they're discussing something else. And I don't think, you know, for everyone else, there's a different point that you approach the subject of what is very significant to your life, you know, in that sort of romantic sense. Like, not everybody talks about those things. And some people wait, you know, like, like my father, when he started dating after, um, after he uh, was separated from my mother, he kept his relationships hidden for a while, because, you know, you don't want to tell a child that, you know, that you're dating someone if that person's not going to stay in your life necessarily, and you haven't figured that out yet. Um, and so, you know, they'd wait a while, you know, to see if it's still lasting and if they think it's going to last. And at this point, he probably, you know, he would have told them because it has lasted. But that point is different for everybody. And um, I, and, and but he did tell his daughter and he was going to tell the others. But uh, at this point, I really don't think it has an impact on the relationship. And I don't think you can decide that and you can disagree all you want. No, look, it's not it's not a decision. It's not, I mean, this is I'm not deciding and I certainly never said what was best or worst. Uh, all that I said is that if you have to keep an important secret from people in your life, that it's a barrier to intimacy. That's okay. that's all I said. Okay, that's, well, I mean, if we can't agree on that, then there's certainly no point talking okay, about abstract ethics. Okay, I can agree it's a barrier. It's a barrier, fine. But I don't – I agree with that. I just don't think that um, that's relevant at this point. Okay. <laughs> well, um, so I'm going to, if, if it's all right with you, I'm going to move on to, to another caller because uh, we do have a bunch of people queued up. I certainly, look, I, I really do appreciate your honesty. I know that this is not always the easiest thing to bring up a non-conventional relationship, but I really do appreciate the fact that you've talked about it so openly. And it certainly has given me a stronger sense of, of you as a person, which I always think is really important if you're going to get into debates as things as, as sort of deep and powerful as uh, as ethics and, and virtue and, and the right way to live, so to speak. So uh, I really I do appreciate that. Yeah, I just, I guess I don't understand what this whole thing was about. You were learning more about me, but you're not, not going to address my question in the end, even after learning about me? I mean, I thought that was the point. Well, the point was for me to, to determine whether I wanted to continue at, at an abstract level. And, and... Well, Why at the moment, I, I don't know. At the moment, I sort of have to move on to another caller because we spent a lot of time. So let me sort of mull it over and I'll, you know, post okay. something on the board or whatever with, with what I come up with. Okay, of course. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. And uh, James, we had somebody, I think, in Europe who needs to get to bed, if I remember rightly. Uh, yes, yeah, Mr. Emil. Um, yes, sir. Can you hear me? I can. All right. Um, yeah, I have basically two points I would bring up. First one, I wanted to thank you for all the uh, work you have done. I think it's great stuff. Um, thank you. I think it improved uh, my life quite a lot and the life of other people I know. I mean, I've been talking with other people about um, the ideas you bring up and stuff. Um, for example, I've got a friend who I think, due to um, your videos, basically decided not to join the army for... 13 years. Oh, fantastic. I think a pretty big achievement. That is a, that is a good day's work, I'll tell you. <laughs> so please pass along to him my congratulations if that means anything to him. I will, certainly. Um, and also on a more personal level, um, I think your book, Real-Time Relationships and um, other related things really 
helped me to um, improve my friendships and other relationships. Um, yeah, that was the first point, I guess. Second thing, a question. I'm not really sure where I'm going with this, to be honest. It's kind of a complex topic. Um, I've had problems with um, things like procrastination and um, motivation all my life, basically. I kind of blame the school system. And I think you would agree that at least it has something to do with it. Because it, well, yeah, for obvious reasons, I guess. Um, it wasn't really a problem back then because, well, it's not really that difficult to go um, through school. But uh, now that I'm studying, it's gotten more difficult because I have to um, do my homework now to succeed. And it's gotten really hard. Um, yeah, as I said, I'm not really sure where I'm going with this. I've tried therapy because, well, you... Um, well, that's what you say. It's not, well, it's not the reason why I tried therapy, but you convinced me that it might be worth a shot, I guess. Um, uh, just to be uh, just to be clear, because I hope nobody does anything because I say so, I've sort of tried to present the yeah, sure. empirical evidence for the benefits of therapy that uh, uh, there's lots of evidence that it is the most efficacious way to build and achieve happiness. So, again, it's not just because I say so. I mean, I interviewed Chris, right, I think it was Chris Hoyce, uh, who had um, some pretty compelling data about the degree to which therapy improves people's lives. So, you know, I'm sort of trying to present the argument rather than an opinion. Yes, of course. And I agree. I have a friend who um, has gotten into therapy because of arguments that I basically got from you. So another good thing. And um, that really helped her to get... Um, to know herself and to deal with um, her childhood. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, yeah, I'm, I tried it last year, but it didn't really work out. I mean, I had like six sessions, I guess, but I kind of had the feeling that she wasn't able to help me. Um, it's like... Um, Sorry, I'm going to need to, just because uh, you're rambling quite a bit, I just want to make sure we get yes. to the meat of the matter. Um, what is it specifically that I can uh, I can help you with? Or try to, at least. Well, if you would have any thoughts on, the, on my problems, basically. I mean, I didn't say much about them, but... Do you mean you in terms of procrastination? Questions? Yeah, right. Uh, have you seen my any. video or podcast on procrastination by chance? Um, yes, I did. And did you that uh, did that fit your circumstances at all? I think you brought up some interesting points. I'm not really sure how much it applies to me because, well, I've kind of I got a problem with um, thinking about all these um, reasons that might be behind it because I don't remember much of my childhood, for example. Which is not a good sign, right? You know that, right? Yeah, I do, and I agree. Yes. Um, and of you of your childhood that you can remember, what uh, was it good or bad or? Well, it depends, I guess. I mean, um, my parents were definitely not as good as I would have liked them to be. I guess. I mean, they were pretty violent sometimes. Um, 
it has gotten better over the years, but obviously I've grown up and can defend myself now, so I guess it's partly the reason. The relationship and violence, sorry, violence. What, were they violent with each other or towards you or or both? Um, towards me, basically, most of the time. Oh, I'm I guess. so sorry. And what, how did the violence manifest itself? Um, well, when I was little, they um, hit me sometimes. I'm not sure how often, but it happened uh, more often than once, definitely. And also things like screaming, I guess. And um, was that was the kind of that was the discipline that you experienced? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. A discipline, for want of a better phrase. Well, let me give you. I just I have a feeling that it's going to be a little bit like pulling tooth. So I'm going to give you a speech that hopefully will be of some use, and then I'll have to move on to the next caller if that's all right. Sure. But I will tell you what I noticed from my daughter that with my daughter, who is now just over two years old, there is no question. There is no issue, there is no problem with motivation. In fact, <laughs> there is often, not just often, there is sometimes a problem with an excess of motivation, right? So she gets up in the morning, the first thing she does is she, you know, says what she's wearing and its color and what color binky she's got. And, and, uh, and then she sort of, you know, says that she wants this and she wants that. And then she wants to go downstairs and she wants to have her, her bottle and she wants to jump on the couch and she wants to run around. And, you know, we've got these, we've got a little dance we do with a broom called the victory dance, which she wants to do. Uh, and then she wants to go up in my shoulders and uh, touch everything that's, that's high in the house. And then she wants to do like, there is no problem with motivation with my daughter. In fact, sometimes her motivations can be occasionally just a little bit exhausting because <laughs> it really is kind of nonstop. She can't, uh, even when she's lying in my arms, she's always moving to some degree or another, legs kicking or, you know, arm is wandering around or whatever, right? And so she is just a nonstop blur of, uh, you know, Martin with its hair on fire motion. And so I, and this to me is nothing remarkable or particular to my daughter. I think that is the case with children in general, that the last thing they ever need is motivation or enthusiasm. I think that is how we are born, is this eagerness, this eagerness for knowledge, this eagerness for growth, for progress. She loves mastering new things. She's just starting to struggle with the alphabet now, and she's learned A, and she's starting to learn B, and we're trying to sort of teach her that kind of stuff. Uh, she's struggling to, um, like, I'll draw a star, she'll try and color it in, and she's trying to draw her own stars, which is kind of frustrating because it's, yeah, even I get it wrong sometimes. So she is hungry for mastering the next thing and learning the next thing and doing the next thing to the point where it almost feels like it's a boulder rolling downhill that you kind of got to slow down rather than something you have to get behind and push. And so I think when we have problems with motivation, that to me is a significant intervention into or against the natural push and thrust and flow of the eagerness that children have, right? So we were at the mall the other day and, you know, she saw a, a little girl sort of her age and she wanted to, uh, to jump and do our victory dance. So she, she went up and grabbed the girl, <laughs> took her hand and said, come do the victory dance. Come, come jump, come run around. And uh, so then I sort of got down <laughs> and did, we, we, we did that for a while. And then uh, there was these ramps going up and down. There's a sort of central area in the mall. So I, I kind of went down and did, you know, the airplane and we did flying through with my arms out, flying through the mall. And the, the, there were two or three kids who ended up uh, following us around as we flew around and all that kind of stuff. And, and so she's, 
she's very enthusiastic. I mean, she's very socially confident. She can be a little bit uh, – because she doesn't deal with shy kids a lot, she can be a little bit overwhelming, I think, to other kids. But, I I mean, all I can do is ask her to be a bit more sensitive to that. I certainly don't want to restrain that that enthusiasm. And so the heartbreaking thing, I think, is that when people like yourself – and this happens to me as well – uh, people like myself, when we are, or yourself, when you're faced with inertia, when you're faced with paralysis, when you're faced with procrastination, uh, to me that is not proof of, but it is a sign of something to explore in terms of what happened to your early enthusiasm. Because I think if parents are kind of depressed, if parents are kind of inert, if parents are kind of empty, then you know, you've you've seen this cliche played out a million times in movies where there are kids, you know, like there's 16 kids running around and jumping on the furniture and, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, there's a mom sort of leaning up against the door frame, rubbing her her head, her temples, because she's got a headache and, and she just, you know, can't take it anymore. And it's too noisy and it's too busy and it's too loud. And this is a a challenge, right? So the the unblemished, rocket-like enthusiasm of children goes smack into sometimes the uh, emptiness or depression or enervation of parents. And children don't have the strength of wings to lift their parents, right? We get underneath them if they're inert and all of our busy enthusiasm and aerial abilities aren't enough to lift our parents. And so sometimes what happens is the weight of the parents' emptiness falls upon the enthusiasm of the child. And the child gets buried under these layers of depression and resentment and overwhelmedness. And the enthusiasm and deep spiritual joy of the child almost rises as an affront to the emptiness and inertia of the parent. And the parent almost can't help himself or herself sometimes to to squelch and suppress and minimize and sometimes even directly attack and assault the enthusiasm of the child because it brings up a lot of pain for the parent, right? The happiness of a child brings up great pain for a brutalized and unhappy parent. And that is a great danger. So over-enthusiastic children that provoke misery, anxiety, hostility, fear, often unconscious in parents. Well, we're either bullied into or assaulted into, or we ourselves choose to minimize our own enthusiasms in order to protect our parents' sensibilities. And this may be something that is occurring for you and has occurred for you. And that's only, of course, introspection and hopefully work with a therapist can help figure that out. But that would be my my approach to that. So I hope that that's, uh, I hope that that's helpful. And please let me know if it's not. We can, we can talk further, but I would like to move on to the next caller, if that's all right. Um, yeah, right. Thanks, Steph. You're very I welcome. I guess I'll listen to it later and then I'll see if it helps. Thanks. But next... Oh, let's not forget, we have in November, if you would like to, we still need some more registrants for it, the Liberty Cruise. For, I think, about 500 bones, you can join myself and Wes Bertrand. I think Brett Vernard is coming. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, Christina and Izzy will be there uh, if this all goes ahead. fdrurl.com forward slash 
cruise. Uh, it's going to be a cruise in the fun and the sun. And uh, I think there's onboard karaoke, which is really the only reason that I'm going. But uh, I hope that you will be able to join us. It should be just a wonderful week. And uh, I hope that uh, you will at least look into it. And if you could sign up sooner rather than later, uh, that would be fantastic because we do need a certain number of signer-uppers in order to uh, to make it happen. So again, fdrurl.com forward slash cruise. Let's get some philosophical sun and sea and swim and <laughs> snorkel and all those kinds of good sibilants that go on with a tropical holiday. I hope that you will uh, you will check it out. All right. Do we have somebody else on the line? Yeah. Hi, Seth. Oh, hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Hi. Hi. Um, I'm hoping that my baby doesn't wake up too soon because um, she's been sleeping this whole time. Okay. Um, we'll keep it quiet. Not so much about that because she's in her baby uh, um, baby carrier. Um, so she's... <laughs> Just keep walking. Just keep walking. <laughs> That's the trick for, for my... I don't know if you'll be able to... My, my mother did the same thing as the example you just gave about the enthusiastic child. Um, she was most abusive to me because I was her most enthusiastic child. She could hit me, beat me. I was still happy running around. Very um, enthusiastic and loving of life in the world. And I still am, though I've carried her abuse over into my relationships that we've talked about. Um, I, I, um, I actually have taken a few steps since I started listening to you. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, I started listening to you maybe three months before I had my baby, three or four months, and my brother's been listening to you for a couple of years. And um, he always told me if I listened to the CDs that he gave me that um, a tyranny of truth or tyranny of illusion, he said that I, I wouldn't be in the relationship that I was. So I never listened to them for like the two years that I had them because I really didn't want to listen to something that was going to take me away from this little wonderful relationship I had, right? Right. And uh, so I finally listened to it. I um, A big thing I want wanted to get before having my baby, I, I wanted to have an, um, my laptop with the iPod and, and be able to get all the information and have access to it, like, um, you know, to, to be able to have that to be the best parent that I could be and really investigate everything I could. And um, on parenting, and you had some podcasts on parenting, and that's what attracted me first. And um, since then, I, I love everything. And now I am atheist, and it took me a while to come out of come to that because I had gone to massage school and really liked the airy-fairy relativistic world. <laughs> right, right. You know, like I, I really loved all the girls and all the enthusiasm that I, I saw in that of just the magical realm. But anyways, now I understand um, and appreciate reason and logic very much. And sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to mention that to me, I mean, I've done yoga, massage therapy, I've had shiatsu done, I've had cupping done, uh, and I think that there is deep and powerful mysteries in the area where the, the, the base of the brain blends with the body. I think that there's, I mean, I don't choose my dreams at night, but they can be amazingly instructive. So I think there is great room, and in fact, I think it's necessary to really enjoy the magic of being this amazing brain perched on this ancient body and the interactions between the two, between the body, the unconscious, and the brain, right? And I think that, you know, people who massage, who get massaged uh, can release, it can release memories. The body can hold the memories in muscles. So I think that 
I just wanted to sort of reiterate that there is this perception, I'm not saying you're putting it forward, that logic is sort of Spock-like, that you become this brain in a tank, unfortunately attached to a messy biological thing. But I think that it's very much united. The brain, uh, the, well, the, the conscious mind, the unconscious and the body are a very powerful system and you shouldn't live a life in, e in any of them at the expense of the others, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah, I... I agree. They're they're all very very much important centers to explore and to know the science on and and the magic part of I mean what the magic that really just science more on the scientific end that they really are you know science is explores just amazing uh, amazing things that aren't are not any less magical than made up stuff that religions make up right you know? right, right. But, mysterious it's like there's a lot of mystery out there that we can really truly figure out you know what like how it works but um yeah i well i started listening to you and, and um I, I i brought up the parenting stuff with my with my ex who's now my ex and um i noticed that he was a major dictator with his son and i i really wanted a, a son that wasn't mine um I really wanted to change things so that when Kaya came into the world, she had a healthy family and a healthy brother that was treated with respect, so he would respect her, you know? And I, anyway, it really didn't work. It actually exacerbated the um, the violence with my ex, and he became a lot more resentful. Like, he, he actually... Um, just took me down when I was pregnant, like pushed me down, yelled in my face, ripped my pajamas. I mean, it was, it wasn't like hitting, punching type of abuse, but it was so oh, it's terrifying anyway. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Particularly yeah. when you're in such a vulnerable state as being yeah. pregnant. I mean, it's completely yeah. terrifying. Yeah. And I, and I really didn't, I, I didn't even know how I could leave weed. I just traded my old crappy Elantra that I'd taken around the country and it was all beat up. I traded that in for a brand new 09 Subaru that he had bought that so was in his name and, and he told me if I left I couldn't take the car and we lived in a beautiful little home, humble abode in Sugar House which is the area where I live that's just the artsy community happening place like everybody rides their bikes every, where it's just a really nice place and, and I had all of the organic food I could ever want like we were made our own, had our own garden it was the life like I was I was so excited that I, I had everything I needed to be able to just attend to my baby and take care of her and not have to worry about working. Yeah, the phrase that just popped into my mind is living the dream. Unfortunately, it is a dream, right? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was total, totally a dream. And it's, um, it's been a nightmare after she was born and, and he, he became so resentful of her, like of the attention I gave her and, and not um, not respecting my my motherly instincts, I guess, and, and would get just really upset and started actually, um, he started smoking pot, which was something he had quit um, before, right when we had found out I was pregnant with her, he had quit smoking and smoking pot. He started doing these things again, he started... Um, just practicing with his dad more and being gone more and um anything that i'd bring up about like any logic anything that i would like when he would lie and i would point it out like the logic he would he would get so infuriated and like violently infuriated he could not um and it wasn't until i would react like so like when i would then cry or get emotional it's like he felt a lot better than when i was actually logical and huh. and when he had any emotion 
but behind it because it was just logic you know like well clearly that was a lie and you know like i don't any anyways um i left him and uh it was kind of scary i was uh, he he threatened to take 50 50 custody of, of of her and i if i'm not feeling safe enough to be with him alone there's no way in hell that i'm gonna let my daughter be with him alone you know right in an environment where he's abusive to his son and he um yeah his son tried to like hang his little brother his son seven, sorry you said i just want to make sure you said you said his son does that mean son by another woman yeah yeah his right, seven-year-old right, okay. son has another brother who he's like he to harm before and it's the scariest thing to me is my daughter being alone with him i would rather be with this abusive person than leave him and have her with him so i was actually going to like really really leave like um leave the country or, or like go live in a different state i was thinking of maybe Keene, where um a friend had pointed me in the direction of but i i also thought hawaii was a lot less depressing if i have to leave my home <laughs> i can see that yeah, <laughs> yeah of, the, of the two having gone to Keene when it's not so warm i i hear that it's not not so nice so hawaii might be a little bit more balmy and look i tell you i mean i, I live with a baby in a cold climate and sometimes it's like being on a space station with really vivid uh, 3D on the windows because she doesn't want to go out because it's like minus 15 and uh, you know if she doesn't want to go to the mall or the library or the play center or Chuck E. Cheese I mean you really are stuck at home and uh, so yeah I, I'm hungry to get outside I'm starting to feel like Gollum uh, at the base of the mountain sometimes here so yeah w warm would be good I just sort of wanted to mention that yeah totally <laughs> um, it just doesn't have maybe quite the community that I, I would be looking for I think more of the maybe um new age kind of people there like I, I looked up meetup groups for um like i think philosophy or atheist meetup groups and i can't remember specifically the group type that i looked up but i didn't see anything like that in in Kauai where i was looking to go um but anyhow anyhow i i learned about nonviolent communication by uh west west bertrand he's um my brother's friend and um i talked to him um, and he, I, I started to learn, uh, um, I started listening to it. I, um, went to Colorado, had an incident with my family. I have, um, I, I was bringing, um, after I left her dad, I went to Colorado to kind of make up my mind as to where I was going to go while, while staying with my aunt and uncle for a little bit. And we got into a political debate. Um, my uncle thought that me sneaking into hotels when I was younger to go swimming in their pools was like stealing. And he was really happy that I wasn't that kind of person anymore. And I mentioned that um, it's really interesting that you were so concerned with me being a thief, just sneaking into a hotel swimming pool when you pay, you know, taxes, they're involved in the government, you know, corruption and, and theft that goes on there. Are you there? Hello? Sorry, go ahead. Uh, sorry, I had just muted. I just muted because I was uh, sitting down. I didn't want the creaks to distract you, but sorry, go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, I don't mean anyway, even of the chair. Um, I just mean of my ancient bones, but sorry. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> well, um, I made some more discovery about family and the corruption of family when I was with my really sweet aunt and uncle that I've always loved over the years. And, um, and they they started yelling and screaming at me because I kept bringing them back to the same logic, the gun in the room, the that paying your tax, if you don't pay your taxes, it's going to be a gun to your head. And I just kept using logic. And they asked me more about how a society would operate without 
without the government. And I said, well, I don't know because I haven't read the books, but there's a lot of books. Les has written a book. And um, I just was kind of pointing them, them in the direction if they were really curious where they could go to find out that information. And um, and they really just um, wanted to yell. And when I'd asked them to stop and they didn't, I actually asked them to let me out of the car. And I, I would never think I would do that with family. So after leaving in a kind of abusive relationship to then being with my aunt and uncle, I was so frustrated, like, where do I go? I felt complete, like, as far as people that, um, you know, think more like, like, logically and voluntarily. And, um, but anyways, after learning, I learned to talk to Wes that day and told him about that. And he, he mentioned um, nonviolent communication and that you can actually um, look at what needs of theirs weren't being met, like for security and that they were really concerned um, just with if, if the government is really this corrupt thing, then they, it takes all their security needs for security away, you know, to if they were to realize that, you know, and see it for what it is. And um, so any, anyways, I, I started to see that there's, okay, there's a different way to operate um, and think. And it, it actually seemed completely revolutionary, like, oh, oh my God, it, where was this nonviolent communication like a few weeks ago before I left my ex and would I have needed to, you know, if, if I had have known this. And I actually came back home and decided to stay in Utah rather than leave because I could possibly work it out with my ex rather than seeing him as the enemy imagery, I could understand in his feelings and needs and um, and be peaceful with him in that way, you know? And it's, I, I listened to it, but I wasn't able to fully empathize and follow through with it because I guess there's too many things that still, um, like I would ask him for help with Kaya um, financially and he, he believed that I should go put her in daycare and that he shouldn't pay me anything and that if I want him to help, that I should just send Kaya to be with him, you know? Right. And um, I, I suggested um, maybe trying to co-parent where we meet up and I try and do some internet business and he can watch her while I'm there. But um, that never works because he, then he goes and smokes and leaves her unattended and um, it's, and also we'll play in the band until four in the morning. So he's not really capable of, of having enough energy for her or, right. you know, and it's, it's, um, and then eventually like I'll, I'll ask him to set dates with me. Anyways, it's just really still been really violent. And I, I wasn't, I just listened to your, um, your thing about NBC and how sometimes it may seem if something seems almost like so magically, like, it's just going to fix everything that it might need to be thought out a little bit more or it might. Well, yeah, look, I mean, I, I appreciate uh, the, the aspects of nonviolent communication and I certainly think that communication should be as peaceful as possible. Uh, you know, certainly to, to start with, I think, I think there are some limitations and I, I'm sure that, that people who are into it would agree. First of all, if somebody's uh, on drugs, uh, it, you, you can't reason with them because they're on drugs. Right, so their brain chemistry is altered, their reasoning centers are altered, their capacity to process the consequences of choices are altered, and uh, like you can't, you can't do. As far as I understand it, you can't do 
counseling with people on drugs. You can't counsel an alcoholic while the alcoholic is still drinking. Uh, the person has to stop using the mind-altering substances in order to enter into any kind of improvement in their communication. So if he's exhausted, if he's if he's smoking dope and so on, uh, I don't see how nonviolent communication is going to be is going to be effective. So that would be sort of my first caveat. Uh, I. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm no expert, obviously, right? I mean, it, it takes a lot to become an expert on nonviolent communication. But uh, all I've seen are anecdotes. Uh, and that's not to say that's all there is. Maybe there is, uh, but I've not heard of any big studies. And, and uh, certainly people who are more into it than I am have not talked about, you know, the big studies about the long-term positive effects. You know, so people who get involved in this stuff, does their divorce rate lower significantly? Is their marital improvement happier uh, over the long run? Because in the short run, you can surprise people into changing by being different yourself, right? So if, you, if you've had a long-standing conflict with someone and you change what you're doing, they have no choice but to adapt in the moment to what you're doing. And, you know, I think that's – and I think Rosenberg himself talks about this, that he was trying to deal with some tribes in Nigeria who kept killing each other. And, uh, he, you know, he got them to admit, you know, that they had needs that weren't being met. And they, he said – he reports that they'd said, well, if we'd known how to talk like this before, we wouldn't have to kill each other. And he worked with them for quite some time. And then he left and they fell right back to killing each other again. And I think then he changed his mind to, to believe that it's more of a multi-generational thing. In other words, there's no magic source in human relationships. There's no magic dust that makes a broken leg whole. And so um, you can get short-term changes in the way people deal with you by not being uh, aggressive, right? Of course. I mean, I, I think that's that's fair. And I think, you know, if I call up my uh, hosting provider, I've had some issues with them and, and I call them up and I'm just yelling at them and read, not that I would ever do that, but if I was, I would be much less likely to get a positive response than if I'm sort of firm, but, but uh, positive and so on. So that kind of stuff to try and get people on your side and enroll people into what it is you want to do, I think that stuff is all great. But um, but there are limits. Uh, you can't, you know, the bomb and the brain stuff that I, you, if you want to check it out, fdrurl forward slash bib. Uh, it's some of the most important stuff I've ever done. I, and I was wished it would get more views, but I understand that it's very much swimming against the the stream of what people prefer. I'm not saying you, but what people prefer in this world, which is the belief that there are some easy solutions. So what I want to see is. You know, if, if, with all due respect to Wes, if if he believes that nonviolent communication can create uh, anarchists out of statists over the long run, fantastic. What I want to see is for him to uh, get a statist in to his show uh, and and use the techniques. I, I'd rather see them in action so that I can learn that way. You know, I'd rather see somebody who claims that they have these amazing abilities. I want to see them in action and I want to see them work over the long term. In other words, I want that person to stay a statist for two years. You know, th those to me are the kind of tests because what I talk about in relationships is not nonviolent communication in that sense. Uh, all I talk about is not, you know, figure out the needs of others and, and figure out how the conversation can meet their unmet needs and so on. Uh, I think that's fine for a therapist to do. I don't think it's that appropriate in a personal relationship. Uh, the only thing that I focus on when I talk about relationships and, and how best is, is honesty, is personal honesty, not trying to figure out what other people really need and how it can be provided. Uh, that to me is more salesmanship or more therapy. What I think is really important is is personal honesty. Uh, this is 
you know, without jumping to conclusions that are unwarranted, right? So if somebody does something that makes you angry, you say, you did this and I got angry. And I don't know why exactly. It could be me. It could be you. But let's talk about it. So uh, that to me is really the essence of philosophy and relationships is, you know, the first virtue is always honesty. Because if honesty is not present, no other virtues are possible. If you're lying to yourself, if you're letting other people lie to you, if you're lying to other people, no virtue is possible in the relationship because there is no relationship without the truth. So that's sort of my very brief, you know, uh, nonviolent communication versus real-time relationships comparison. Uh, don't jump out of your own skin, in my opinion, to try and figure out what other people need. Just be be honest and direct uh, about what your emotions and your experience are and let the other person, of course, as much as possible, be honest and direct about their emotions and experience. But those, I think, are, are the big uh, differences that, that I see, if that makes any sense or, or is even useful. Yeah, like if he's if he's worthwhile, I guess as far as if he really is concerned at all about being, um, I, I guess not anger, violent, or fair-minded, or something, or, or or concerning, I don't like I guess virtuous or moral or anything like that. Like I guess he would pursue that on his own, and the idea of nonviolent communication is is to maybe help give him. A, a more of a push or opportunity to to see himself better, like his own needs that he may be disconnected from, which may be why he doesn't pursue truth or virtue or any of that, you know? Um, but look, if, if he's in a place where, and I'm just going by what you've told me, right? So correct me if I'm wrong, but if he's in a place, my friend, where he feels that smoking pot is an appropriate thing to do while being the parent in charge of a baby, then I don't think that the issue is whether you are into nonviolent communication or not. Does that sort of make any sense? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's his own trauma living out or something like it. Well, you know, it it could be. Uh, I mean, who who wants to psychologize even third party, right? So, it, and and this is something for obviously for, for you to figure out. Though, uh, obviously, I that there's a huge amount of scientific evidence to show that compulsive drug use is related to early child abuse and and unprocessed early child abuse and so on. But the reality is, of course, that you you can't be smoking pot while you're in charge of a baby. I mean, you just you can't be. You can't be doing that. You can't be doing that. Uh, that is not responsible any more than you can drink while you're in charge of a baby. Uh, that that's just not not a good thing to do. I mean, I won't even have a light beer if I'm in charge of Isabella. Like, I just won't do that kind of stuff because who knows, right? Babies, you need, you need quick reaction times with babies because they're always doing stuff. And if it even slows you down a little bit, that's that's not good. So, uh, so you know, obviously, I hugely commend you for your desire to keep your precious, beautiful, wonderful, perfect daughter uh, safe from irresponsibility and and potential physicality or violence or aggression or any of those kinds of things. I think I think that's fantastic. I personally this is just my opinion, right? So you can take it for whatever it's worth. I don't think that nonviolent communication would have been a magic pixie dust to turn around your uh, now ex-husband's approach to this, right? So if he was physically aggressive to a pregnant woman, physically aggressive to anyone, but physically aggressive and frightening a pregnant woman, that is some deep, dark shit, my sister. That is some deep, dark stuff. And there's no magic pixie dust that can turn that kind of night into even a morning time. You know, to to, to deal with that level of entitlement and, and violence 
And and look, I mean, it could be possible that that somebody finds themselves doing that. Like so you, you get into a fight, and your husband like finds himself, you said, ripping your pajamas or or physically aggressing yeah. against you, yeah. right? And and then what you do is you say, oh my god, like you see yourself, and you say, oh my god, what am I doing? What 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 am I doing? And you're so horrified by what you're doing that you will stop at nothing to get help. You will stop at nothing to get yeah. help. And and yet, if if you're like, I'm I'm okay with that. That that was you know you made me do it. It's perfectly valid. I'm going to smoke up again. Well, that's not something that you can fix. Yeah, that's not that's you can fix. Or what it is, it's, it's more of the the blaming it because I want him to change or whatever things like I I was pointing out that he lied or whatever it was that makes them angry. It's not. It's never that he needs to get his own seek after help for himself, which was what I needed to be able to stay in that relationship was for both of us to have therapy. And we started seeing a um, a counselor, not the same as a therapist, but um, that was helping a little bit, although um, like he didn't find it useful to continue funds in that direction. Um, he had other priorities. Um, and so now I'm just looking for one for me. And and basically like what I'm I've been trying to figure out is like, okay, do NBC and stay in Salt Lake City or or basically give up the one last thing I haven't given up yet, which is the hometown I live in. Salt Lake City is so gorgeous and beautiful. And I, I've, I've already given up everything else and mourned heavily over it. And now I'm just wondering, like, if, if there's any chance that he might try and, and, and like, he seems like he's not trying to get custody now because she's a baby and he can't really do anything with her as a baby. He's not interested in in having me involved anyways, that the chance that he might threaten down the road to to get the law involved and like or the courts. And even if they said that he had to take her every other weekend, I would leave the country and I, I would have to become a felon in that case because I'm responsible for her and I'm not going to send her off to somebody like that. Even if the law is like these people are putting guns to my head to make me, force me to give my daughter up this like the, the least likely person to be any good candidate for a babysitter you know right yeah look look well, look the first thing the first thing i want to say and look nobody obviously can tell tell you what to do uh, in this kind of situation i mean it's but i just i just want to you know reach out as much as i can and just tell you that i'm so so sorry that at a time when you should really be enjoying with with palm, calm and peace and serenity and a supportive, loving, attentive husband, you should be really basking in the joy of early motherhood and the trials and the tribulations and the challenges and the sleeplessness and all that kind of stuff. I'm so sorry that this is even coming up, that this is this is a kind of issue for you that, that, that you have to think along these lines. I absolutely applaud you for keeping your child safe. That is obviously the most essential thing. But, oh my God, I mean, what a terrible, terrible situation to have to be in, particularly, you know, new moms need, you know, a, a Spartan army of support because it is such a draining and intense uh, period to be, uh, to, uh, is, is, your, is your baby relatively young? Yeah, she's nine months, almost nine months, and yeah. Okay, so you're you're coming out of that a little bit. I mean, at least for us, I mean, the first six, seven months are just a complete blur of like we were just one big pile of flesh. It felt like you know, just one big goo with like six arms and six legs. So, um, I you know, I I wish I really wish that you had had that kind of 
uh, uh, peace as, as much as possible. But new moms in particular, you know, they, they need so much support from everyone around them because that, that those first six months, nine months, I mean, they're just so intense and so draining and so exciting and so amazing that I just wanted to point out that I, I really wish you'd, you'd had that and not had to start thinking along along these lines if that I mean I just really wanted to point that out because we sometimes in the blur of, of stress management we can forget just just how tough things are thank you so much yeah, it, I, I really I really could have benefited by um, by knowing this earlier on though I'm really happy I have her I, I really I really see importance now of people doing their self-work before, and I, I think I knew that in a way, being a, um, I consider myself a pretty intelligent young person, and and it made sense to do the self-work before having kids, and um, but I definitely let my own childhood trauma get the best of me as far as who I chose as my partner and eventually had a child with, and it's definitely part of the process of being a mother to reinvigorate that um right. that protector and then to see like even more so the harm that my mom did and make me understand really the impact of it like i i could never imagine her feeling inconvenienced to me like for me to be inconvenienced with her in any way or her energy and and as tired as I am sometimes like when I don't you know get sleep she nurses a lot through the night still and um I'll like I I, I, I give every bit like I just I get every bit of enthusiasm that I can possibly conjure up to just be in excitement with her over life because she's so excited you know right. and um just to think about my mom it, it definitely brings a new life on that you know and um, that she didn't do that for me and you know she she very much was very abusive and uh, uh and so anyways i i very like i uh, my priority right now is finding a therapist besides figuring out my living like what where i want to be you know right right look i mean i i gotta just share with you that what you're saying is is just moving me enormously i mean your obvious love for and dedication to your daughter um i can just i'm just picturing you sort of walking around with this bundle of tender sleeping joy uh, on your chest i just wanted to tell you what a what a beautiful thing it is to hear and to to picture uh the 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 depth of beauty and ferocity in terms of protection uh, and keeping her safe and keeping her nurtured and the degree to which you are confronting and overcoming your own prior traumas and the, the, the stand that you're taking to keep her environment secure and safe and nurturing and loving. Uh, I am, I got a, I got a tear in my eye. It is, it is just a beautiful, beautiful thing to hear. And I mean, I don't want to make this about me or my show, but the fact that, that even to a small degree, what what this show is doing, if it's it's moved you in that direction, even one degree, uh, you know, you have a mighty, mighty heart. And I think that your daughter is incredibly lucky to to have you as a mom. And I just wanted to tell you just what a beautiful thing it is that, that you're talking about here and what you're doing. Thank you so much, Beth. Like, it really, it just, it, I really appreciate you appreciating that and seeing that and, um, you know, because it can be, it's definitely been really hard and I've definitely, like, I've at times just fought 
myself even thinking, oh, I could have done MVC and stayed with them and had my life still, but like, I'm so happy now though, just to think that she'll never have to see somebody like harm her mom and that's how women should be treated, you know? Yeah. No, exactly. And uh, however stressful it may be to get out of a relationship with a guy who is, you know, obviously not ready to be a father, to put it as nicely as we can, the stress levels of staying inside something like that is, uh, I mean, is, is worse. I mean, it's the best of a bad situation. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm sorry that the situation is so bad. Uh, I'm incredibly uh, I, mean, I hate to say proud of you because that sounds sort of condescending, but I'm incredibly proud of the stand that you're taking uh, with regards. And I can I can really hear the love that you have for your daughter. And uh, I mean, she is lucky to be nestled against uh, the wonderful heart that she's nestled against. And I just really, really wanted to share that because, you know, that's not something we don't give enough praise, I think, to, to, to particularly new moms who are wrestling with this kind of stuff, particularly moms in your kind of situation, which is which is so hard. Now, if you move, I guess just one or two bits of practical advice for whatever they're worth. Uh, if you if you move, I think it's really important that you make sure that wherever you're going has some kind of support area or group that you can be with. Um, you know, my experience of parenting, I'm not going to speak for my wife, but certainly my experience of parenting has been uh, we're doing it without friends or family. You know, that's just the way that philosophy shaves you down to the bare bones of truth and integrity. So we're doing it without extended family. We're doing it without uh, babysitters. We're doing it without um, uh, friends. And uh, it's it's hard, you know. And, and we have the privilege that we're both home. Uh, you know, my wife works, but she's home for a good chunk of the day. And uh, it's even then, it, it can be pretty intense. So wherever you're going, just make sure that ahead of time, ahead of time, please, uh, you look into chat rooms, look, talk to people, uh, call, call people around. If you move to Keene, there'll be lots of contacts. Wherever you look to go, find some place where when you get there, you have someone so that you're not uh, j just alone with your daughter because I think that can be uh, tough. Uh, I think that could be really tough. So I think it's really, really important to try and develop uh, as, as strong a support network ahead of time so that you have some place to slot yourself in, uh, some place where you can go and hang with other moms or, or dads if they're stay-at-home, and some place where you can have your, your wonderful daughter play with other kids. I think that's, uh, that's really, uh, really important. I just want to sort of put, put that out there. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's actually put one question in the chat room to ask people if they knew of any like intentional type communities that involved atheists and voluntarists, but um, cause that definitely seems ideal, something that's safe nurturing, but also on the very, very affordable side, you know, like um, I, I knew of co-ops and stuff in Seattle. I never, I, I couch surfed in one for a couple of weeks when I was traveling before. But um, I, I don't know of like a family community like that, and so like more of just people that have more of the family atmosphere, you know. More like I know of a lot that just have like kind of a young vibe. But um, I'm definitely gonna put that out there then and, and try and find it and um, that. Yeah. I, yeah. If if people know of that kind of stuff, if they can post those resources on the board, I think that would be uh, I think that would be great. So yeah, I mean, look, I I, I mean, I, I sort of wish there was some magic 
god brain that I could access that would give me some sort of sense of to tell you what to do. And obviously, there's such a thing does not exist. And what I really wanted to do with this was to to listen to, to sympathize, and to certainly recognize and respect what you're doing to keep your daughter safe. Uh, also, to try and steer you away from the magical thinking of if only I'd arranged my words differently, with a slightly with a different intention, uh, things would have been magically reversed. I don't believe that that is the case. I think that human personality is extremely, extremely inert. It does change if you really get behind and push it, but it's like a massive boulder. Its tendency is to just stay wherever the hell it is, and it takes a lot, a lot of work, as you, of course, are, are figuring out, right? It takes a lot of work to move it around. And, uh, you know, we understand that if somebody in our life is 400 pounds, and we say, you know, you kind of need to lose some weight. And the doctor says, you kind of need to lose some weight. And here are your triglycerides. And here's your cholesterol. And here's your heart murmur. And here's an x-ray of your knee cartilage buckling in. And, and if they say, no, I, there's nothing wrong with me. You're fat. And you weigh like 100 pounds or whatever, that this person is not going to lose weight. Now, if somebody says, you know, God, I can't even climb up the stairs. You know, every time I reach down to tie my shoes, I have to part my gut like Moses with the Red Sea and I can't even see my toes and you know I, uh, I, um, uh, I, I kick a soccer ball and my knees twinge and you know at, at some point like somebody is going to say I really need to lose weight. Now even if they say I'm sick of this I really need to lose weight the vast majority of people do not lose weight and keep it off successfully. And so when you're dealing with dysfunction, I always find it's useful because the, the brain is very immaterial. It's very amorphous. And people can mislead you about their intentions or their they can mess with your head and so on. I like to translate the brain into something kind of physical and tangible. So if I have a dysfunctional person in my life, I sort of say, okay, well, if this person was was 400 pounds and I pointed out that they were 400 pounds and really needed to lose some weight, if they denied that there was a problem, then for me to hang out hoping they're going to lose weight – is insane. It's understandable because we all have, you know, hope. Um, and so we all want people to lose weight because it's a lot easier if people in our life become healthier and saner and more philosophical and wiser and, you know, all of that kind of good stuff. But if somebody in my life is really overweight and not only doesn't think that they're overweight but thinks that I'm overweight, well, I'm not going to think that that person is going to change. Now, even if they get that they're overweight and are really committed to change, the odds of them changing in a sustainable, meaningful way are very small. I mean, this is true of just people who lose weight. Was it 80% of them gain it back within a year? And as somebody who recently lost 25 pounds, I guess, a year and a half or two years ago, it's, you know, something you have to keep, uh, keep maintaining. So, I, you know, I don't think that... The brain is any more malleable than the belly, so to speak, right? I don't think that brain cells are any more open to linguistic <laughs> manipulation than fat cells, so to speak, right? I don't think that there's a nonviolent communication approach or any – or even like an RTR approach, I don't guarantee that relationships will improve at all. Uh, I, I guarantee that you will be telling – if you're telling the truth, it's sort of, it's sort of a uh, tautology. I guarantee that if you're telling the truth in a relationship, you will be telling the truth in the relationship and you will genuinely see what telling the truth in the relationship does for or to the relationship. So that's all I – all I promise is, is honesty. I don't promise any effects 
on the relationship. I don't promise that the other person is going to react in a different way or a better way or a worse way. I simply say the only responsibility that you have is to be as honest as you know how in your relationships and to give people feedback on your genuine experience of them in the moment, which is sort of what I was doing earlier when you were sort of moving me to tears. And so when it comes to your ex or to your aunt or to your uncle or whatever, um, the brain is a very fixed organ. You know, it is the organ that is the most fixed from birth to death. You know, our bones get brittle, our muscles atrophy, uh, uh, our skin sags, our hair uh, gets brittle or flies away. But the brain, assuming no physical injury or deterioration like Alzheimer's, the personality for most people is pretty much identical at 85 as it was at the age of five. This is the science that I've read and it seems to be very consistent. So people do gain weight and they do lose weight. But as far as personality changes go, if somebody genuinely recognizes that there's a problem and if they do not project that problem or blame it on others but rather accept responsibility for it themselves and if they then take practical and tangible and objective and empirical actions to change that, not, well, I'm just going to work on it, I'm going to do a bit of journaling, I'm going to whatever, but goes to therapy and, and reads up and does the exercise books and, you know, like, like uh, John Bradshaw has some self-help exercise books and Nathaniel Brandon, like actually does those and shows you, not like, hey, mommy, I did my homework, but shares with you the results and genuinely digs in to try and change, well, yes, then the personality, the potential can be unleashed. But that is the other person. You can point it out. You can encourage them. You can be there for them. But nobody can climb the mountain but us. You can't get pushed up the mountain. You can't get catapulted up the mountain. The mountain can't be dragged down to your level or other people's level. There is nobody who can climb the mountain but ourselves. And that is true for your ex-husband and it's true for you. I don't need to tell you that because you're climbing the mountain. <laughs> Good way up, it sounds like. So I just wanted to give you that, you know, don't take the ownership for what uh, what happened in terms of if I'd said something different, things could have gone in a much different way. I mean, you, you, you did try therapy, which is, you know, good for you. I don't think that long-term couples should ever break up without therapy. So uh, I just wanted to to mention, to give you some release in that. You, you can't change others is sort of what I'm saying, but I guess I needed to say it in a very long-winded way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's just definitely, uh, it's definitely a relief to hear that again. So I, um, I mean, in, in that regard, it's, it's not me who's going to be keeping Kaya from her dad. It, it's me exercising the protection that I need to, and if she wants to get on board, you know, with her or be involved in, in the healthiest way he can be, you know, then that's that, I mean, that is his decision. It's just, it, um, it, it's not going, like, I, I often wonder, like, like, you know, I was thinking before, well, if I do the NBC and then she can see her dad and have, uh, like, it would be me making that possible or not possible for her to have her dad in her, in her life. And, and as concerned as I am for her to not have the dad, the father figure, um, I know logically it's better to not have it than to have something that could be, you know, potentially hazardous for her. Like if he does take her alone and something happens for her, like with the more kind of negligent parenting style, I guess that he has, that I 
you know, like he lets his son go and play, let his son go and play with our child molesting neighbors, like our neighbor that was a child molester. And that's just one example of like the neglect and something that we were fighting over before I had or right around the time I had her. So like right. that kind of a thing, like it's just, I know that she's not going to be like, he, he has a judgment of things that isn't quite, it's like more relativistic, like, oh, that person went through their life lesson they needed to learn. And he doesn't even learn, know if the guy actually learned anything from molesting his daughters and that he doesn't even know that he learned, oh, that was a really bad thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, certainly my experience, the people who are generally, not always, but the people who are most into relativism are the ones who feel the most need for forgiveness. But anyway, listen, I, I, I want to just address one last issue before I go. Uh, if you want to send me an email, I do uh, uh, I have some listeners in, in Hawaii who I'm sure would be happy to chat with you about what it's like there. So just shoot me an email. I'd be happy to put you in touch with them. And uh, thank you so much for sharing. And listen, I, I wish you the very best. And again, just you, your daughter's very lucky and, and congratulations on what you're doing to keep her safe. Thank you so much, sir. You're very welcome. So somebody has, uh, just before we end up here, and I'm sorry for those callers who didn't get a chance to call in. Um, sorry for those people. We've had some server issues. We have a new server. Please feel free to uh, donate at um, freedomainradio.com forward slash donate if you'd like to help out with the copies, uh, sorry, with the cost of the new server. And thank you so much to Bill and to James and to uh, Phil who are doing technical wizardry that to me is like the flashes of lightning on a hill overhead uh, <laughs> as I hide in the grass of now growing technical incompetence and obsolescence. Uh, I used to be quite the wizard myself, but it is a long time since I picked up that particular spell book. So thank you everybody so much for the work that you're doing uh, to to help uh, get this server up and running uh, to deal with the kind of traffic that it needs to handle. Holy crap. I mean, we, we're doing uh, over 200... Uh, gigabytes of downloads a day, a day. And that is really quite astounding. We'll probably hit six or seven terabytes uh, of podcast downloads a month. That has nothing to do with all of the video sites that we're on. Uh, we're uh, hitting four million video views. So it's really quite, quite amazing. And thank you, everybody, all the participants and the supporters and the donators, whether it's time or money that you're providing in terms of helping to promote the show. Thank you, everybody, so much. Thank you to the people who've allowed me to pester them with interview questions. That's been wonderful as well. So let me just end up by um, addressing something that somebody brought up in the chat room. Uh, a, a wonderful listener put together a, a video uh, called uh, – uh, let me just <laughs> – I really should know this, uh, but let me just double-check on the uh, the title of the video. Uh, and uh, he put together, I think, a, a wonderful uh, video image. It's called A Short Story in Stop Motion from Free Domain Radio. And uh, in it, uh, it, it's some snippets from the uh, podcast, a podcast I did some time ago where I talk about how uh, it can be very helpful to think about the impression that you're leaving on the world when when you die. It can help you to organize the way in which you make decisions about the present. And people are saying, and I think it's maybe more coming from objectivists, which I completely understand, where they're saying, well, look, thinking about how, how other people view you is a second-hander thing. Right? You should live your life with integrity and so on and, and in a sense, not care what uh, what other people think. And I I mean I, I agree with that to some degree that, that our first the first thing which informs our decisions should be uh, should be principles. But uh, you know principles they don't help us a huge amount in life. Like I don't often get tempted to steal a car and say, ah, property rights. 
They're really, really important. Uh, you know, that that's not the kind of stuff that I really face uh, in, in my life. Uh, or, you know, oh, I'd really like to strangle this homeless guy. Oh, damn, UPB says that murder is wrong. So uh, this is not, not really things that I face. And so when it comes to the aesthetics rather than the ethics of how I live my life, when it comes to the aesthetics, that is, uh, uh, there is some importance uh, in that. So <clears throat> there are so many ways that you can deliver a philosophical message, right? You can, uh, you can say nothing and write on a chalkboard with a video camera slowly and painfully. Uh, you can, uh, you know, put on an Irish shamrock sh- uh, suit and uh, and dance a jig ferociously uh, while screaming out your philosophical arguments at the top of your lungs. Uh, I'm sure that you could, we could continue with this, but you understand that there's an almost infinite number of ways in which you can present that which is valuable to the world. You can make your t- sugar, sorry, you can make your um, medicine taste like crap, or you can try and add a little bit of sugar. So there's lots of ways. Th- that don't have anything particularly to do with ethics, but have something to do with efficacy. Uh, and this comes out of my sales history, my sales background, and I believe that sales is a noble and positive profession. And um, so, yeah, I think it does matter. It does matter what impression you leave. Uh, you can be right and an asshole. And I certainly have been accused of being <laughs> not only an asshole, but not right, which is <laughs> certainly valid and I guess always possible. But um, it does matter. Uh, how, how you present yourself. It does matter uh, what, what, what words you choose. It does matter whether you're open and honest. Uh, it does matter whether you're engaging. It does matter whether people are interested in and care about what you do. And the interesting thing is that a lot of people uh, who, who've criticized that, and there have been some criticisms on the video, which I, look, I understand and I accept to some degree, but those people are there because it's a beautifully made video, Right. <laughs> So their presentation is important. If it were just typed out on a web page, it probably wouldn't garner quite as many views. So uh, the way in which, I mean, I presented arguments uh, similar to, you know, my big videos, uh, the story of your enslavement or the Matrix video or uh, Money is You or um, uh, the Sunset of the State or, or, you know, those kinds of stuff. I presented those arguments, but... They didn't leave much impression in people's minds because they were sort of buried or scattered around. But, you know, those have probably contributed close to a million views to my website, uh, sorry, to to the YouTube videos. And so the fact is that the presentation does matter. The fact that it's engaging and interesting and enjoyable to consume a philosophical argument in that kind of format does matter. And uh, so I think it is important to, to have some concern about the way in which we're perceived in the world. And that certainly doesn't mean that we must be a slave to other people's approval. I'm not, because the first thing is principles. But, you know, once you've solved the, the, the issue of principles, the question is, okay, so now what, <laughs> right? And then for me, of course, I think if you have the ability and desire, then it's important to engage people in the search for truth and virtue and integrity. And how you present, not in a false way, but, but how you present is not unimportant as that. And uh, it's not unimportant to, to that regard. So, uh, I think that it is um, uh, it is important, and of course, if you're into philosophy and you want to make the world a better place, then it does matter whether people think about you when you're dead, because you know, I mean, people think about Socrates when you know 2,500 years after he died, and that that means something. Uh, now, it doesn't mean something good, and people think about Genghis Khan, or they think about Hitler, uh, and so it doesn't mean that it's necessarily good. But if you are 
you know, it's like if you have a great product and nobody buys it, is it a great product? Well, it's really hard to say because there's no empirical evidence. If you have a great philosophy but nobody wants to listen to you, is it a great philosophy? Well, it's kind of hard to say. Um, so I think that it's, you know, if, if a tree falls in the wood and nobody hears it, does it make a sound? Sort of an esoteric uh, argument. So I think that it is the job if you, you know, if you're calling and chose and want to do it, it's the job of a philosopher or a philosophically minded person to engage the world and challenge the world to do better, challenge the world to improve and to shun evil and to embrace virtue. And uh, yeah, it does matter. It does matter, I think. And if you are going to gauge the success of what you're doing by its degree of acceptance, which I think anybody who's interested in communication needs to at least keep half an eye on, uh, then I think it is important how you... Um, how you present. And one of the ways of measuring is the degree to which people are listening. And uh, I am an empiricist and I am a peaceful market, free market kind of guy, which means that the customer is king. And yes, that is that is important to me. So I hope that that makes some kind of sense. And uh, sorry for going over. I really appreciate people's patience. And uh, thank you, everybody, for you know such a great show. And thank you, as always, to the listeners for calling in. I will talk to y'all with a blink of a soonness.